From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. In challenging times, nature brings us peace. From time immemorial, humans have taken to nature to soothe their anxious and tired souls. In today's busy and built world, opportunities to experience and commune with nature are often limited. But today's guest is doing something about that. Alden Stoner is the CEO of Nature Sacred, an organization dedicated to bringing natural sanctuaries to urban communities to reduce stress, improve health, and strengthen communities. It's work that was important before and is becoming increasingly important every day the nation confronts its current challenges. Take a deep breath and find your favorite tree. We're talking nature and urban spaces on this week's PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here with a quick reminder that your support makes a huge difference for this podcast. During tough economic times like these, a small donation goes a long way. So if you'd pay Netflix $8 a month, maybe consider making a quick donation to support this nonprofit this month for this produced content. Thanks for your help. And now, let's get back to nature. As CEO of Nature Sacred, Alden Stoner brings over 20 years of experience in building and marketing social impact organizations. Prior to joining Nature Sacred, Alden mobilized organizations and the public around social issues, films, Fortune 500 brands, and startups. Alden's history with Nature Sacred runs deep. She served on the organization's board for nearly 15 years, contributing to the strategic planning and overall operations of the organization. She also co-directed and produced several short films about the organization's National Nature Sacred Award winners. Alden graduated with a BA from the University of Southern California, Phi Beta Kappa, and holds a dual master's in global media and communication from USC and the London School of Economics. She lives in Annapolis with her husband and son, where she gets 20 minutes a day of nature by paddleboarding on the Chesapeake Bay, forest walks with her kiddo, and Japanese wood carving. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're joined by Alden Stoner, who is the CEO of Nature Sacred, an organization dedicated to bringing natural sanctuaries to urban communities to reduce stress, improve health, and strengthen communities. We're so pleased to have her here with us today, but before we dive deep into nature, I want to learn a little bit more about you, your story, where you grew up, and and how you got into this line of work. Thanks so much, Nick. So happy to be here and be a part of this. Well, I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland on the Chesapeake Bay, and nature has always been a, a big part of my life. Um, that being said, my parents actually co-founded the TKF Foundation, which is now known as Nature Sacred. So you might think that this was always a part of the plan of me being a uh, part of this organization from a staff perspective, but in fact, that is uh, nowhere near how this all un- unfolded. Um, I actually went out to Los Angeles to work for about 20 years in media and partnerships. And that being said, my last corporate job in Los Angeles was working for a guy named Jeff Skoll at Participant Media, where we made films like um, Food Inc., The Green Book, and Lincoln, to name a a couple of historical ones for you. And uh, I was in charge, really, of creating social impact campaigns around that work. I had the benefit of working on a variety of different issues, um, including hunger in America, predatory prison phone rates, and climate change. It was an incredible perch from which to see 
how change does and sometimes doesn't happen um, with the convergence of NGOs, philanthropy, corporate, and government coming together around certain issues. And because of the opportunity of working on a wide swath of things, it was it was a deeply uh, eye-opening experience. And over time, I really wanted to go deeper and work on one or two things and, and go deep in that way. Um, I will say, meanwhile, uh, back at the ranch, I was had been working um, on the board of Nature Sacred for almost 15 years, and we had done a national awards program. And after leaving participant media, I took my then three-month-old son and my uh, husband and one other person out on the road across the country to create five uh, short films around our national award sites. And while I'd been a part of the selection of those sites in as a board member, getting in on the ground, putting cameras in front of people, interviewing the fire souls who are the, what we call our community leaders, it got into my DNA in a very different kind of way. And I think that was probably the first moment where I connected my personal passions around nature sacred and my professional ones. Um, I then moved back here to the Annapolis area with our uh, young family and uh, to be really close to family and to, to close to my folks. Um, I had a job in DC working in and around impact again. Um, and we had a legacy plan in place at Nature Sacred um, that just didn't unfold exactly as we had anticipated. And so at that moment, um, I raised my hand and said, let, you know, I can help shepherd this into a, a new life and into a world of sustainability. And so we made the shift from being a private grant giving organization to being a private operating foundation. And so um, I'm really humbled to be a part of this legacy and um, excited to bring nature to people where they live. And I think today more than ever, people need that. Yeah. And I was also going to say, I mean, just kind of hearing you describe what you did in some of the projects that you worked on, particularly um, when you were back in California, um, you've moved into a very positive space as well. I mean, I can only imagine doing films on predatory lending and food ink and um, not, not the, uh, the most uplifting of stories. And, and, you know, in, in many cases those haven't been solved, but um, you're now working in a place where, um, you know, you're, you're seeing the positive impact like daily. Um, so yes. I, we definitely need to come back to fire souls because, you know, for listeners of this podcast, this is obviously a podcast sort of rooted in preservation. Um, and this is an interesting kind of overlap between these two worlds of the nature uh, and the built environment. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I think the fire soul thing is something that preservationists need to need to think about that term and those types of people, because we, we interact with those types of people. And we'll talk more about that. But I'm not sure we have a definition or a term like that. Um, and I know that that's something you guys have worked on. So Let's talk a little bit about Nature Sacred. So we, we've heard about the roots, but like, or at least what it was doing when you kind of came in and how there was a transition in place. But where did the idea um, come from? And then maybe we can kind of go from there to like the first project of the organization. Yeah, yeah, happy to. So the organization's been around for nearly 25 years. Again, started by my parents, Tom and Katie Stoner. But they had a life-changing event, really, um, an experience when they were in a London garden. 
they had been traveling all day and were, were quite afraid and happened upon this portal into this um, beautiful city park. Um, but it was, you know, uh, right amongst the buildings, it was accessible nearby. And while on this walk, um, they were just struck by the calm and tranquility in the city and something about that worked for them. And then lining the walkway were a series of benches, um, many of which had inscriptions on them uh, from the people who had frequented it from the time of World War II. And they had sought refuge in those spaces. And what my parents saw and felt in that space really change them. And that's when they decided to bring that idea back to the U.S. and to, to where they were located. I mean, Nature Sacred or the TKF Foundation at the time really focused on Annapolis, Washington, and Baltimore. My folks had been from Iowa where nature was aplenty and everywhere. Um, that's where they grew up. And so to come to the D.C. area, um, you know, where cars and concrete were much more pervasive. That's where they recognized that lacing nature into our urban sanctuary, our urban cities um, to create these sanctuaries was was so critical. So the first project was in Maryland, D.C. Where was it? Yeah, well, you know, one of our very first projects was the, at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation headquarters uh, here in Annapolis, Maryland. So they recognized the need for nearby and accessible nature for their employees and for the community around them. But um, looking back now, they, they really were sort of ahead of their time thinking about that from an employee wellness perspective. Our work really sits at the center of environmentalism. So it's, you know, got the green impact aspect, social justice, um, really this idea of uh, equal access to nature for all or, or an attempt to get us closer to that. And then health and well-being. Um, these spaces really sit at the center of that. And the sacred place uh, known as Inspiration Point at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation happens to be really a perfect example of that as their work is grounded in environmentalism and it helps encourage equal access to nature that organization does as a whole. Um, and in large part, it was to foster the wellness of their employees. So, you know, these relatively inexpensive um, interventions of green space can have a massive impact. Yeah, and it's funny. You know, I guess not funny, but it's it really is sort of a poignant moment for the work that you are doing and that the organization is doing. Because when you talk about you know environmentalism, social justice, health and well being, I mean, so climate change, race relations, um, and equity, and um, COVID pandemic. I mean, those, those the right. I mean, the, those those three. You could <laughs> yeah. just say those three things in a different way. I mean, you know, and and nature sacred alone. I think, as you would point out, can't solve all of those problems. But you can certainly right. be um, a restorative place to address those issues. Um, at least Absolutely. the way I see it. I mean, I guess I'm putting words in your mouth, but but I think that there's a <laughs> there's there's tremendous value to this work, and you know. In the interest of full disclosure, we've been talking for a while about um, potentially bringing Nature Sacred into um, a community that we're working in in Western Maryland, in the city of Hagerstown, and looking at are there opportunities there? Um, because we we see that there's a real value um, in having these places in in these built environments, and um, 
so maybe to drill down a little bit deeper for people who are listening, because we've sort of talked in the philosophical about what this is. Yeah. Um, what's a typical project look like? And I know that that's hard to say when people ask me, what's a typical Preservation Maryland project? It's like, well, that there is nothing that's typical. There's no typical day. But um, maybe you can give us a sense for the scale of these things, size, features, impacts, types of communities, um, or ones that you're particularly proud of. Yeah, absolutely. I you, you hit the uh, nail on the head in terms of there is no typical. It really does range. Um, but yeah, happy to share some of that. It, it ranges in size and scope. Um, some of our uh, most impactful actually are just the size of an open lot or what some people call a vacant lot. Um, and we can transform those for relatively um, little money. I mean, it's somewhere in the 25 to $30,000 range. Um, but all of it depends on the community and the size and, you know, other permitting things certainly are a part of it. But, you know, we've done open lot greening, uh, from a small swath of land and totally transformed a neighborhood like, uh, which has been part of a larger transformation in, for example, Sandtown, Winchester and Baltimore to large scale projects in Brooklyn, New York, to rooftop gardens, um, or sorry, rooftop labyrinths on the top of the American Psychological Association building in Washington, DC, which also functions as a green uh, roof and does stormwater capture. So the impacts are layered and, um, and many from community cohesion to environmental um, benefits to health benefits. So some of these are more pocket parks and others are more nodes within larger parks, but essentially trying to create a very specific kind of contemplative space for people to access. Um, so it really runs the gamut. So far we have about a hundred plus sites across the country, though certainly a large percentage is here in Annapolis, Washington and Baltimore area. Um, but in terms of process and elements, you know, each place is customized, but the process is the same. It's quite consistent. And the big headline there is that it's community led. This is a bottom up, what the community wants, what the community needs. Um, we start with a, a charrette process. So these open meetings where we invite all members are hope one of our core values is open, both the process itself, meaning open to all voices and the place itself needs to be open and accessible to all people. So the, that's one of our core pieces. Um, but the community is the one who's really going to steward these places. We're not there on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, we're helping the community create them. And so it needs to reflect their stories, their sense of place, their values. Um, and then it's made sacred. That's how it's made sacred really by the community and what it values. Um, and so there's always, of, there's, there's specific features though that, right. Yes. There's, a, there's a, is there always a bench? Yeah. Am I right about that? Yes, there's always a bench. So there are some hallmarks, but the, the process is as important as the, as the outcome, if you will. But the hallmarks of the spaces, um, are really, uh, there are four key design elements. There's the portal, the path, the destination and a sense of surround. And the portal is when you go through a portal, you recognize that you're going into a space. And on some level, there's a quietness that happens when you go through that transition. The path is there designed to help you unwind your thoughts. Um, the destination, which as you point out, is often one of our, there can be several destinations, but there's 
always one of our nature sacred benches, which is one of our signature benches um, that has a journal embedded in it um, for people to have reflections and talk about their spaces. And then the sense of surround. So that's often, you know, some kind of green, whether it's bushes or a sacred grove of trees. And that actually goes back to really our, our biology in the sense that, um, in our blueprint as humans, we want to know what's behind us and then have a view of a perspective of what's in front of us. And it's a real safety feature. So it's like, is the lion coming at you? Right. Isn't this <laughs> and, supposedly why people love mowing their lawns? Isn't it? I've, I don't know. I've heard, I've heard that there's psychology associated with that. Now, obviously you're not, you're not into, uh, sh- tightly shorn lawns but um <laughs> but but supposedly there is there's I, the same thing i'm i've you're talking about is that there's some of that psychology yeah. there that's why people because it's like you can see everything the, the lion yeah the lion will be seen the lion will be seen but but that is how you actually lower your cortisol levels that's how you lower your stress levels so it's this um evidence-based design is part of how we think about these sacred places um and, and what those portals past destinations and sense of surrounds look like in each space is totally customized but those are sort of the the fundamental building blocks so why don't we take a quick break here and then when we come back um, we can talk about, maybe talk a little bit about the health benefits of this. Um, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We all could use better health. Um, and we can talk about how nature um, provides that for us and how these uh, spaces created by Nature Sacred can do that as well. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Jean Baker, a thoughtful historian who re-examined the place of women's experiences in American history, read by Megan Bacco, Director of Communications at Preservation Maryland. Historian and Goucher College professor Jean Baker played a particularly important role in making a place for women in the public eye of history. She rightly observed that women are too often excluded from historical and academic accounts. Jean's work in the larger women's movement helped many see that the crux of history doesn't have to be primarily male political leaders, like kings, presidents, and prime ministers. That a traditional women's role is also incredibly important to the understanding of past and current societies. During her research, Jean Baker turned her attention to many suffragists, including Lucy Stones, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Alice Paul, and their campaign to secure the right to vote. She wrote the stories of their courage and persistence in the face of years of verbal and physical attacks. The New York Times cited Baker's work as wider in scope than any previous work and making good use of sophisticated feminist historical and sociological scholarship. In addition to profiles of suffragists, Professor Baker was particularly central in putting forth a more empathetic image of Mary Todd Lincoln, 
Mary Todd Lincoln, of course, was Abraham Lincoln's wife and mother of his children, including William Wallace Lincoln. He died from typhoid fever as a young boy. The loss was an emotional blow to both Mary and President Lincoln. But Jean Baker observed that Mary Todd Lincoln had been victimized by the press of the time and consequently by male historians for her emotions. Presumably, her reputation was in need of repair because she had stepped out of the expected, quiet, and almost invisible role of women in public. In her grief, said Baker, she cried too long and too hard. She disobeyed every rule of anonymity expected of ladies, especially of first ladies. Baker said, I responded to her mistreatment and to her sense of rivalry with everyone. Baker's work vividly recounted Mary Todd Lincoln's sense of abandonment and desperation at the death of her child, and later her paralyzing grief and fear at the death of her husband. The holistic and emotional lens of Jean Baker's approach as a historian brought a depth of human emotion to her research and her writings that ultimately increased the understanding of Mary Todd, suffragists, and other women in history. Fellow Goucher College professor Lori Kaplan wrote to the Baltimore Sun that Jean Baker tells stories so convincingly and so authentically that the reader could feel the texture of the people and the families in her research, as well as the weight and restrictions of those stresses felt by women in history. This accurate telling of women's history is Jean Baker's triumph. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast. Today, we are joined by the CEO of Nature Sacred, Alden Stoner. And before we took our break, we were talking about the types of projects that this organization has done um, and some of the key features and the psychology, really, that goes into creating these places and making them restorative, contemplative places. Um and you talked previously about you know, sort of the health and well-being aspects of this work, um, but do we actually know? Is there is there any is there any science behind this, or is this uh, a stonerism? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I got to start my own stonerisms. No, um, there is quite a bit of science uh, that is continuing to grow. So science has taught us a lot, and and it's continuing to evolve. Uh, leaps and bounds, really. Um, but I would, the thing that I say to everyone, really, I talk to is that 20 minutes a day is the recommended dosage. You don't have to like the nature. You don't have to focus on the nature. You just have to be in nature and that for 20 minutes a day. And that's the optimal um, dosage for you to receive a variety of benefits. And some of those benefits include um, a decrease in symptoms of depression, something you know, I think a lot of people, frankly, are struggling with right now as they're cooped up or dealing with job loss or whatever is, is going on. Uh, the issues are myriad that we're all facing right now. Um, there's also an increased feeling of wellness and well-being, um, and it can minimize symptoms associated with, for example, ADHD as well as stress. And I talked a little bit about stress and those cortisol levels coming down when you're sitting in that sense of surround, but those reduction in stress, um, can reduce a variety of physical issues, including headaches, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, and fertility issues. 
So, um, yeah, that's just to name a few. And we, we were a part of, uh, and supported a study at legacy hospital in Portland, Oregon as well, that, um, demonstrated that access to these green spaces, these sort of green break rooms, if you will, for nurses dramatically helped nurse burnout uh, or alleviated nurse burnout. And boy, that is something um, certainly our frontline workers need, but I think we all, to your point, are suffering from a, a good bit of that and people are on some level fleeing the city so they can access nature. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, I mean, sort of anecdotal, but like it's, it's hard to stay stressed when you're outside. I don't know why that is. I mean, there, there, there's my very non-scientific explanation of it. And and um, we've done some stuff here, and there's a previous episode about um, health and well-being and, and historic places. And I think that they probably go hand in hand because when you're experiencing a place or a historic place, oftentimes you're outside experiencing it or you're walking through a neighborhood. Um, and we know that it, it – it, being in historic communities with rich architectural fabric and cultural features um, – reduces stress and and it would go hand in hand with having sort of these these green break rooms as you describe them um so you you mentioned also that each site has a notebook um and again this is an area where i think there's some interesting overlap with the work of people you know a a lot of preservationists talk about their work being place-based and i think you would describe yours the same way Mm -hmm. and um i think the the notebook concept is interesting and could have some um you know, maybe there's something there for preservationists or people involved in historic structures to think about what do the entries tell us about how people are experiencing these places? How are you using the information? And then I guess the very preservation question is, are you archiving it in any way? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know which order I'll take those in, but, but the archive, I guess I'll start with. And the short answer is yes. One, of, we have literally hundreds. You've seen them of, of journals in our office. We don't have physically all of them because some of the sites like to keep them, but they will digitally send us uh, the scans of the entries. So we have thousands of journal entries collected over the last 25 ish years. And um, the cool thing is they're in languages uh, from all over the world, and because because many of our sites do draw very international audiences, and they they have everything in them from um, you know especially in the hospital settings talking about dying parents or people who are uh, in surgery to um, you know to PTSD on university campuses. A lot of kids struggle with things like suicide, and so there'll be actually. Um, we've seen a couple of entries where somebody's thinking about this, but then someone else responds and says, your life's matter, your life matters, like stick in it. And the person will come back and say, thank you for these words. And so, you know, it's kind of uh, turned into a bit of an analog Twitter in some cases and, um, can be a really, a real conversation amongst each other in addition to a release of what people are feeling. And, you know, we've had marriage proposals, uh, come via the, these pages, as well as what you might expect, which is uh, reflections on the present moment, the birds chirping, the sun shining, moments of gratitude. They really mirror the ups and downs of our own lives, um, but so many of them are filled with hope. And in terms of what we're doing with them, I think part of they're really our best feedback loop uh, that we know that these spaces are working. And I brought a couple to, to share with you. 
um, that, that might be of interest. They certainly moved me, but I'll say before sharing those is that, um, we've done research with Cornell and the university of Maryland on these journals, um, as well as with, uh, TIH, um, and some others. And so there are a lot of content analysis ways of looking at it. And, um, we're continuing to cultivate and call those journal entries for insights in really our humanity, our collective humanity and how, how they might help. So could I share? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that that kind of brings it full circle and gives people an idea of what, what's being said here. Yeah. So it's, um, I'm just sort of inspired and stunned, uh, often by, the insight and beauty. Um, this is one that was written on March 13th, the day before lockdown, um, from our Georgetown waterfront park labyrinth in DC. This day I sit here the first day in my life to go through a worldwide panic. Life has taught me from international travels around the world, that we are fragile mentally and physically as we are powerful in the state of progress. We are all victims we are all fighting to thrive. This is the time for greatness to truly shine over the evil that we're overwhelmed through panic. Time will show again and again that we are who we are individually as a family, as a community, and as a species. I have hope for kindness. I have hope for us. Was, was Barack Obama in that park? Is that true? Is that, was he there? <laughs> Uh, no, that was, was so not. kind of him to write something for you. I know. Gosh, wow. Was, yeah, that I is, that is powerful. Yeah. And, and boy, I, I, you know, we're living through a tough moment. I hope they're right. I hope, I hope they're right too. But I, I believe, I believe they are that honestly, in some of the really challenging days, um, that I know all of us have experienced, but in very different ways, I, received, you know, from, from the fire souls, they would send in a couple of these entries and it put new gas in my tank to just go and work at this work harder because, um, of, of things like that. I mean, you know, that, that is a reflection of our humanity and the hope and possibility. Um, and it's, it's hard, it's hard being a human and it's hard being in society, but so there's a lot to, it's interesting. You mentioned fire souls and I don't want to forget yeah. that piece. Um, oh, yeah. do you want to define the fire soul? Because I think that that again is, is something that, people who work in preservation and, you know, we're working with some fire souls in, in Hagerstown right now who, you know, brought us to this project and, and encouraged us to do it and have helped to raise funds for it and are right there side by side with us on it. And we could not have done it without that. And that's just one example. I mean, we work with dozens of people like that. And I feel like anybody who works in nonprofit work is familiar with this, but I, I haven't heard the term before I met you. So tell us about what is a fire soul, where the idea came from and how you define it. Yeah, the fire soul, um, you know, I don't know exactly who coined it. I think it was one of my parents that I don't, I couldn't totally tell you because it's just become part of our lore. Um, but the fire soul are these individuals, these community leaders who community leaders is great and important, but it somehow doesn't capture the magic of the absolute commitment that many of these people have, like you were talking about the, those in Hagerstown who, you know, day in, day out, they are fanning the flame of their community. 
they are the spark. They are making it happen. And we have always believed in Nature Sacred back when it was TKF, now when it's Nature Sacred, that we are just here to support. I mean, you know, those are the folks who are making it happen. And um, their spirit is just unmatched. And really, in my opinion, those are the, the people in our society that make it all work. And it's hard. It is hard work. It is passionate work. Um, but it changes lives. And so that's how we think about our, our fire souls, our community, community leaders who, who fan the flame for their community. Um, and fire soul isn't think. trademark. So people can, we can, we can spread this term, right? <laughs> well, um, you know, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly a term that we've used for a while that others haven't, uh, caught on to, but every time we talk to people about it, um, you know, they're like, what's that word again? That's, a, that's such an interesting way to think about people. Yeah. So, so yeah. I mentioned how this is a, obviously a preservation podcast, you know that, um, and you know our work, yes. but, um, how do you think that this work blends with the built environment? So, you know, is there a, is there, is there a big role for nature in historic places? Do they, do they go hand in hand? Are they counter to each other? How, how should preservationists think about nature? 100% they go hand in hand. Um, looking at our own network of sacred places, we have multiple examples of those that are on the grounds of or associated with historical sites. And um, just a couple of those to give you context are the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site in DC, where we have a small sacred place. Um, the Naval Cemetery landscape in Brooklyn, New York, uh, was actually created in 1838 and once held over 2,000 graves, um, including those of two Congressional Medal of Honor winners. And yes, I researched this, a Fijian chief as well. Wow. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, um, while uh, many of those graves were moved, uh, many remains are believed to still be there. Right. And as a result of that, when we did that design process, that was so important to how the community thought about it, how they really felt like it was hallowed ground. Mm -hmm. And from a design perspective, there is a lifted boardwalk that goes throughout it. So visitors don't actually step on the ground. They step above it on this mm -hmm. boardwalk. And there's, you know, elements where, where people can congregate and things like that, but it's all elevated. Um, you know, and, and it floats. And the, another example I'll just say is we worked, um, on Mount Olivet cemetery. Also, we don't exclusively work with cemeteries, but that's one of those historical places, um, that was one of the first racially integrated cemeteries in DC. And we did this project with the nature conservancy. So going back to that stacking idea, the nature conservancy, um, was working on stormwater capture and so they were bringing that environmental layer. And then we stacked on top of that, of adding the community connection and cohesion and creation of this space. Um, and I guess the third layer from a preservation pr perspective is, is the historical context in which that particular cemetery existed. So the, the nature historic connection is, I think, um, very organic and, and really deeply rooted with, with one another. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like we artificially, and, and by we, I mean, all of us engaged in this work, probably artificially create barriers between these different things. Um, I know that the, the national trust in um, the UK 
is much more aware of sort of and engaged in the nat- the natural side, the historic side, the cultural side, the artistic side, and they see it all as sort of like one piece of work that works together. And I think sometimes we throw up artificial boundaries and say like, well, I do preservation work, so I don't worry about trees. And then the tree person <laughs> says, well, I do tree work and I don't care about your old building. And the community says, yeah, but we need all of those things. And we need you guys to think about them collectively or comprehensively. So I think that's the beauty of this kind of work is that it does kind of bring together all of those pieces and reminds people that it's, it's all kind of all connected, right? Yeah, absolutely. The the systems approach is really one I think we need to adopt more thoroughly as we move forward because we do have a tendency to be uh, siloed about it here in America. I, I studied in the UK, and so um, I remember halfway through my my program there, I was like, "Ah, oh, I get it, system." Like because we were we're so ingrained here in America to think about your kind of microcosm that you're in charge of, but it, we are all. I mean, not to get too philosophical here, but we really are all connected and all these issues, um, impact each other. So I think that's right. And, you know, the thing about having nature either associated or uh, these contemplative spaces in close proximity to these historical places is that that's a way for us to take in the moment, take in the significance of the history that we're observing and on some level a part of, right. in terms of continuing to preserve it as we go forward and nature gives us the space to do that. And these journals, for example, give us an opportunity to reflect on that and, and share uh, with a broader community. Yeah. And I think also in, in sites associated with difficult history or, you know, communities where they were racially segregated. Um, it's an opportunity to sit there and think about, where we've been, where we are now, where we're headed. Um, and I think the journals are interesting um, because they they give us a chance to understand the people that we're serving, what they think. Uh, and I think all too often it's about what we think or, you know, with preservation, well, we know that this building is important. Well, does that matter to the community? Right. Like, is it important if it doesn't matter to the community or does the barbershop on the corner hold so many stories that that's actually what matters, not the, you know, the, the Queen Anne's building down the street that you think matters because it's architecturally significant. And I think sometimes we don't listen enough. And I think that's some of the beauty of the, of the work that you guys are doing. Um, yeah. So what's next for, for Nature Sacred? You guys are in sort of a, a pivot moment, um, as I guess we all are. Um, but, <laughs> but where are you guys headed? And then if people want to learn more about this work, um, how do they find you? Yeah, absolutely. So we are in a really exciting time. We are looking really to multiply our efforts going forward and um, continue continue the work of healing communities. Quite honestly, we were underway on this before COVID struck. And now, and we've talked a little bit about this, um, gosh, our work just seems more pressing and more uh, needed than ever before. I mean, there has been this sort of debate that's gone on, um, within this world of is nature an amenity or a necessity? And I kind of think the debate's over. Um, you know, I think with everyone crammed into their houses for such a period of time and parks being the last to close and the first to open, people recognize that if they could just go to one place, it would be, you know, green space. So I think that's, um, a big, you know, 
positive outcome in terms of people thinking about and valuing the importance of nature and these nearby nature places. So we are in real growth mode and um, we are looking to to start a, a couple of new initiatives and we'll um, probably roll those out towards the end of the year, but really wanting to support um, particularly healthcare workers and um, particularly underserved communities and communities of color as we go forward. And, um, you know, I think one other thing to, to just share on that and part of the inspiration for where we're headed and, and why we're thinking about this in a scale way is we had sent, um, the organization had sent around my father's book called Open Spaces, Sacred Places to a number of community foundations. And a couple of years ago, we got a call from a gentleman named Fred Smith, who works at the Community Foundation of Northeast Alabama. And he said, we received your book and we were inspired and we have funding actually in honor of, of a historical person and we have access to space. Can we use your model? And we said, by all means, this is fantastic. Yes, we will help you and think through how to um, do this community work and how to engage these folks, how to think about, um, you know, portal path, destination, sense of surround, sense of place and maintenance. And, you know, some of the uh, less sexy, but very important um, pieces of, of stewarding these spaces. And in the course of this year, um, even amongst uh, the, the pandemic, they are opening 15 of those 18 spaces and they're um, 18 two for each of the nine counties they represent. And one of those is actually on the civil rights trail. Hmm. So there is real connection to historical places as well as community places. And those things really do, as we've talked about, sort of intersect. So and um, talk about needing yeah, a, I mean, in terms of, oh, I was just going to say, talk about needing a place for contemplation, right? Yes. I mean, that's, you <laughs> know, that's some heavy stuff. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So if people want to learn more about nature sacred, where can they find that too? I want to make sure that, that you get a plug in here so that people can, can find your website and, and figure out how they can support your work. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So, uh, naturesacred.org is our website and, um, that site is, is, more than what it might seem. There's um, guides to research and a lot of how-tos. Um, but we really welcome anyone who's interested in becoming a fire soul or who has identified a place perhaps that they are interested in, um, that they can give us a call and we'd be happy to advise them and think through that process. Um, but it's, it's, it's an exciting time and it's really in the hands of the people. Well, that's a that's a perfect way to I think uh, encapsulate the work. Um, before we go, we ask this of everyone: your favorite historic place or site? Oh, Nick, I think I might have to cheat. Can I do three really quick ones? <laughs> we like to narrow it down to one, Alden, but I suppose. All right. Well, uh, you know. This one is the national parks. They are sort of our ultimate preservation land. So and I have a personal proclivity to Joshua Tree, having lived out in the LA area, okay. the quiet of the desert. Um, uh, the, the second I'll just share is a place called Koyasan in Japan. It's a monastery town and they have a cemetery there that's in the woods. And despite it being a cemetery, it is the most alive place uh, I've ever been. And um, the third, and, and I will say, you know, really personal one is 
uh, London Town Public House here in Annapolis, Maryland, where um, my mom was involved in that organization when I was growing up. I went over and volunteered and participated in a bunch of projects. And, you know, as a kid, some of it seemed interesting and some of it seemed historical, you know, in that uh, sort of school way. But now that I've moved back to Annapolis after 20 years on the West Coast, I have taken my son, my three-year-old son, to several events and um, and occasions at London Town Public House. And having those institutions is so important. Um, our history is essential in knowing where we've been so that we can mark where we're headed. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a perfect way to end it. And I'm sure the people at London Town would love to hear that. And we're friends with them. So we'll make sure that they know they were mentioned. That's the yeah. first time that they were uh, called out as a, a favorite historic place. So really? Uh, yeah. So right up there with Joshua Tree and a um, serene Japanese cemetery. I mean, yeah, you know, they're, I, they're always mentioned with those two. So, um, well, this has been so much fun and really, um, a great opportunity to hear about your work and think about the ways in which, um, nature and historic places intersect. Um, and we're looking forward to hearing more from you and, and would love to have you back in the future as nature sacred continues to grow. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Nick. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.